Oh, Drew finally, <laughs> he finally brought you a whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> what sort of whiskey is it? I'm not sure, actually. It's got ginger in there. It's been adulterated, but I thought it was quite early to start just like knocking back whiskey, so. <laughs> it is, according to my watch. But it is Friday. Ten minutes past, yes, yeah, ten minutes past six. Mm. Speaking of watches, you need to silence your Apple Watch as well. Do you do, do you have the tones on your watch or do you keep it off? No, I have everything turned off. I, uh, notifications annoy me about anything, so I, I turn the sound off on everything, including the computer. Um, yeah, not into things playing noises at me. I've still got an iPhone 4S, so uh, no Apple Watch for me. Alex has finally, his has just died. I mean, he dropped the thing in a river in Costa Rica. <laughs> which is never the best thing for a phone and then we we had this decision to make it's like do we pay the expensive insurance excess and get a replacement or mm. do we pay a slightly cheaper um fee to have it repaired and then you know just make it last and yeah so we did the cheap route thinking that that was we could get it fixed for like 120 quid and it did work again for a month and then it just died yeah, so, I, I I soaked one out running um, a iPhone five, um, and it yeah it kind of would sort of work for a bit, and then something else would break on it. It was sort of like on a kind of slow shuffle off, you know. <laughs> well, I do wonder whether or not we can still make an insurance claim because we didn't process the first claim. You mm. know, we, yeah, we, you might be able to. Yeah. We got a quote, and we you know we figured out what the process would be, but we didn't actually ever pursue it. So. I'm wondering whether we can still do a claim. Mm. Yeah, sounds like you might be able to. Anyway, his Max died this week as well, so the poor guy is like, <laughs> everything seems to be seems to be failing on him. I remember when the Max I had seemed to die every six months. It was always graphics card or or hard drive, and I just had years and years of failures with the things. But um I'm going to say that they've mine have been quite reliable over the last few years. I had a lot of trouble with MacBook Pros. I had two which essentially just melted their insides. And I only edit text files. I mean, that's kind of my job. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I was doing anything that really should be melting anything. But uh, yeah, the, my recent one's been pretty good though. Well, I don't know what he's going to do. I think it's gone to a repair shop. So it's about six or seven years old now. He's had it since he was at um, or before university. Right. So he has done well, and he's mm. replaced bits. You know, he's replaced the hard drive and put an SSD in there, and you know, he's, he's given it a lease of life that it probably didn't deserve. <laughs> so I don't know what comes next. Shopping in the Apple Store. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of shopping in the Apple Store, can I just do a quick public service announcement? If you've got an iPhone or an iPad with a Lightning cable, just your split at the end, the Lightning cable end. Uh, not mine again. No, no I don't. iPhone so. four. <laughs> okay, because I've had we've got like several lightning devices, and every single one has had like a little split that starts at the lightning end of the cable, not the USB end, but the lightning end. Mm. And the the split kind of gets longer and longer and longer until the rubber just kind of disappears, disintegrates, and then you're just left with like silver silver wire. Mm. Mm. Which is no good. And these things are like 15 quid each if you mm. want to buy them again. So I just thought, this is ridiculous. So I've got three and two were really bad. So I took them into the Apple store and 
ask the lady that I saw you know, whether I could get these things replaced. And she agreed to replace the one which was not quite so badly damaged. The split was, you could tell that it was a split in the rubber, not a complete kind of disintegration. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wouldn't replace the one which has literally kind of fallen apart, even though they were roughly the same age. And she said that they get quite a lot of people taking these lightning cables in because mm. they're split. But if yeah. you take them in when they just start to split, they'll, rep- they'll replace them. But they won't replace them when they've gone too far. <laughs> that, that one is too broken. You can't bring yeah, that, that back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You can't bring it back because we can't tell that you didn't run over it with a lawnmower or something. <laughs> Whereas the little one, the little split, they were quite happy to replace. So I told my friend Matt this because we had a meeting and then went back into the Apple store and he had a lightning cable that was exactly the same. And he took it to a different person in the shop and they literally scurried off into the back and gave him a replacement on the spot. Huh. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Public service announcement. Excellent. <laughs> That's what this show's all about. Rachel, do you owe a million euros to Ireland? Um, this- I'm not sure. In fact, I can see the letter here. Let me see how much it was that Ireland um, thought. Now, I only owed uh, just over 10,000 euros to Ireland. Was it Anna Debenham no. that owed like a million? I think it was like two million. She had one of the highest uh, demands that I've seen out of anyone's. But yes, yes, Vatmos and the uh, the Irish question. <laughs> so just to explain for people that don't know what this was, you got a letter in the post? Yes, I got a letter, uh, interestingly, to our home address rather than to the sort of limited company registered address, uh, which told me that due to Vatmos... I owed Ireland uh, just over €10,000. And the interesting thing about this is that the whole Vatmos thing is, the the whole idea behind that is that we pay our local tax authority, HMRC in the UK, we pay them any VAT that we owe to other countries since the VAT place of supply rules changed, and they kind of distribute it. So we pay one bill, and then HMRC spend their time distributing 56 pence or whatever to Germany or whatever it is that, that we owe them. Um, so we, were, we weren't expecting any letters from other tax authorities anyway, certainly not €10,000 uh, to Ireland, which is far more than products that we've sold to Ireland. Uh, so yeah, so something strange happened. And this thing looked official from the photograph that I think you well, posted or yes. Anna posted? Well, it's kind of interesting because it sort of looked official, but we did a bit of searching about it and discovered that the address it was coming from was actually the vehicle registry office. Mm-hmm. Um, the logo on it isn't the logo that you tend to see on the Irish Tax Authority website. So we were pretty sure that it was a scam. Um, and anyway, Monday morning came out. Th- these letters came to UK businesses on Saturday. Most people got them on Saturday morning. And of course, the, you know, the Irish tax authority, they were all at home for the weekend. So the, there wasn't anyone to respond. Uh, so when it got round to Monday morning, they said, oh, yes, these have originated from us. Now, until that point, everyone was convinced this was some sort of scam. Um, now, they've not said anything more than, oh, we're very sorry we sent you these letters. It's not true. You don't owe two million euros. Um, but yeah, so what on earth happened? They're kind of like, oh, there was a computer error, but that's a fairly hefty computer error to send everybody registered for Vatmos uh, a spurious demand when they're not supposed to be contacting us anyway. How did the Irish get your address in the first place? Well, presumably from HMRC, which raises interesting questions in itself because we were told that, you know, 
by registering for VATMOS, if there was a query um, with the amount you've paid or whatever, the the other tax authority should be coming through HMRC and saying, you know, we think this person hasn't paid what they should have paid and it should be our tax authority that then sort of investigates. Uh, so it's an interesting precedent, even if these letters are wrong. It's kind of interesting that Ireland felt it was okay to send letters to another country, um, to, to people who are registered for, for Moss, because uh, the whole idea of Moss was that we didn't have to be contacted by other countries. Because at least this was in English. I mean, if if it had been, you know, Poland or somewhere, sending these things out would have got a foreign language letter, probably, <laughs> demanding money, which would have been even harder to, for people to cope with. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about VAT and VATMOS, if we can, mm-hmm. in a minute. Because I think that's something that's affecting a lot of people that sell digital products. And you know, we're just about getting started. We're having to look into it as well. And I think that it relates to selling our own products, digital products in general, especially books, which mm-hmm. something that we've all done in the past. And I think, Richard, you're just about to be doing the same thing. Yes, embarking down that road. Yes. But first, what I should do is I should formally introduce both of you to our listeners however many, many minutes we are in to this podcast. <laughs> are you ready? Because this is the start of the official part. This is the part that you'd hear if this podcast was as good as something on the BBC. <laughs> ah. So here we go. <clears throat> a very warm welcome back to Unfinished Business. I'm your host, Andy Clark, and this week I'm joined by the author of Dynamic Dreamweaver MX <laughs> and Dreamweaver MX 2004 Design Projects. <laughs> You did. You wrote a lot about Dreamweaver, didn't I did, you? Yes. <laughs> and most recently, CSS three layout modules, and of course, co-developer of Perch Little CMS, Rachel Andrew. Hello. <laughs> and also joining us today for the first time, and I don't understand why it's the first time, co-founder of Clearleft and FontDeck, and author of Web Typography by Richard Rutter. Richard Rutter. Hello. Thanks for having me. At last. How was that? That's very, very, very professional. I try to make at least one part of the show sound professional. Because <laughs> the rest can just be all about travel mugs like it was last episode. I should probably point out that I'm not author of Web Typography by Richard Rutter yet. I am writing it. You are currently authoring. Yes. <laughs> and That's how correct. is that going? It's going well. It's going well. Um, it kind of had a bit of a delay with the uh, Kickstarter campaign when I decided to do it that way. As I suspect we might have a little chat about that. Um, but right now I'm back into writing and um, it's feeling good. It's uh, yeah, I'm managing to do a bit every evening, which was always my plan, and it's uh, it's coming on. It feels like there's some momentum behind it, and I'm quite pleased with how it's coming together. Well, I'm sort of doing the same on a project Mm -hmm. except that i can't do it in an evening just i mean i do do it in an evening but i can't just do it in an evening i've got to basically just say right here's a block of time i mean it's four to five weeks and that's it um i've closed the the studio doors and literally this is my job for four or five weeks just i've got to get it done Hmm. yeah i've already done a week like that this year early this year where i took a week off Kind of an extra week at the end of Christmas, actually. It was really nice because um, I sort of told work that I was at home and I told home that I was at work, which meant that I could hide myself away in a cafe for five days in a solid 
And um, I really enjoyed it, um, kind of being on my own without those responsibilities around and writing or actually preparing for the writing, doing mm. research and making notes and stuff. And I've definitely got to do um, at least a week or two away from anything else um, in order to get the book finished. But in the meantime, I, I can do the evenings and just about chip away. Yeah. Well, I've not been very good at the planning in the past, but this time I had to be because we've got such a short time scale. So I've done that thing where I've literally thought about, I mean, I even wrote things on a piece of paper and tried to plan everything out, all my sort of section headings and then what the subsections were. And now I've just got to basically get on with it, which is the hardest bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's really interesting actually how different people approach this stuff. Um, uh, you know, because I often get asked, because I've written quite a lot of stuff, you know, people say, oh, you know, how do you do it? What, How do you structure doing them? And actually, everything I've written has been quite different because it's depended what other stuff's going on at the same time. Um, but I, I, I kind of think by writing. So I often have lots and lots of bits and pieces that can become a book or can become, you know, some like a presentation maybe or, or whatever um, that I sort of draw on when I'm actually putting something together. Um, I have masses and masses of content, and lots of it not published. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should, I suppose, we're, we're going to talk about VAT and, and that kind of tax stuff later on, I think. But, you know, as we started talking about the book, let's talk about the book. Because for anybody that's kind of lived under a rock for, well, the last three months or so, you are currently writing the web typography book. That's right. Which I think has been, it's been on the cards for, Oh, for years. I mean, bloody hell, what's kept you so long? Um, yeah. Uh, it's been on the cards since about 2007 were the first conversations I had, initially with Mark Bolton and then various other people since then. Um, and it's just been it, – it's because I always wanted it, it to be a collaborative effort, which it no longer is. And I think that's partly what's been delaying it because um, I really did want it to write it with, with Mark um, amongst other people and of course Mark's been busy writing other books and publishing other people's books until he got out of that business and moved to monotype but um but that was uh, him doing that was actually the the impetus for me to think well if I don't do it on my own then it's not going to happen at all and I really wanted it to happen so then I just I, I just carried sort of carried that through and started to try and make it happen I mean, in my mind, and I'm not trying to butt your buns, but you writing a book about web typography is the equivalent of John Hicks writing the book about icons. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, it, it's it's something I'm really. Uh, it's one of those things when you're really into something, as I am into typography, and particularly web typography, because it you know, certainly back in 2007 when we first started talking about this thing and designers started trying to persuade designers to take it seriously on the web. It was before web fonts came along. Um, and it, it's something I've always been into, and that makes things uh, easier to write about. And also it just keeps you enthusiastic and keeps you learning and keeps you wanting to find out more and more stuff. And, and also looking back in the history of typography um, all adds to that, uh, to that background. And, and, and I like trying to tell people about it too. So. Um, that's where the books come from. Well, it's going to be a handbook for designing beautiful and effective typography in modern websites. That was the explanation that you put on the Kickstarter campaign. And I think that was an interesting thing because you got like an overwhelming response 
from that Kickstarter campaign. I'll put a link in the show notes. But you had 714 effectively pre-orders, I suppose, although some people pledged more because they, I don't know, you take them out to dinner or on a train to Vienna or something if they pledge a lot more money. <laughs> yeah, it, it was basically over 700 people pre-ordering um, either a paperback, ebooks, or um, or a fancy hardback. Um, and a few very nice people signing up for the package where they got a ticket to Ampersand as well. No one went for the like the big top-end one, which was... I'll come and talk wherever you are, and um, but you'll need to pledge over a thousand pounds for the privilege. Um, that was in there to make the other ones look like better value. <laughs> <laughs> it was really nice getting those pre-orders, uh, which is which is really what they are. But it, it just gives you that confidence that there's a market for it. That's what Kickstarter gives you. Really, is a really good way of testing a market for something like this. Because I knew I wanted to do the job properly. I knew that meant paying for an editor. That meant paying for someone to typeset the the physical books because that's not what I do um, and help me with illustrations as well because I'm not that much of an illustrator either um, not to get it up to the quality that I would want for the books and all of that stuff is going to cost money even if I draw in you know favors from friends and family and things like that and because I would want to pay for that because as soon as mm. you start asking for freebies then you know it becomes a burden for people and so I could either try and find that cash myself and put that investment into the book and then it becomes a gamble whereas Kickstarter um, just takes away that that gamble really and, and you can you can get that money up front and you know people want it um, and, and it's it's great and it was so gratifying when it all came together. Yeah, it was it was it was really it was really fun to to watch that actually and and uh, and see how well that was going. So I'd kind of kind of wondered how well that would do. Um, and particularly with doing the the print stuff, I think because I I've self published, but I've never gone the step of doing print versions, uh, mainly because they say you know it's it's a huge amount of expense up front, and then do you end up with the things like in your house? <laughs> yeah. So actually having those kind of pre orders and knowing that people wanted them and you're going to be able to ship them out, uh, that's uh, that's huge, really. Exactly, knowing that um, there's already. Uh, uh- and a market for um for your initial print run. So when you're paying thousands of pounds, which it would be for the initial print run, you know they're going to a home, and and you know that you can probably you can take a guess at how many more people might buy it afterwards as well. That's where it becomes a bit of guesswork, but mm. um, you've paid for a lot of the the upfront cost anyway yeah. for that. So and then so when you've got a job lot like that, then you can start looking at logistics companies to help. Um, package and ship mm. that off, which you've got to pay for, but um, you have to weigh that up against probably many evenings packaging up <laughs> 700 books to post around the world. And there are companies that will do that for um, um, not much money. Yeah. yeah. I know that Mark and Emma did exactly that when they first did their Five Simple Steps, I think it was Mark's first book. And they had to kind of design the plastic, uh, the cardboard sleeve that they sent the books out in the mail in. Mm. And literally, I think it was like a Friday job or something. They would literally, you know, sit there licking stamps and writing envelopes. Yeah, and I've been down that route a little bit in the past. Um, in the year 2000, which seems an awful long time ago now, <laughs> because it is, published um, a CD-ROM, not a DVD, a CD-ROM um, with uh, my now wife on um, on Pompeii um, because she's a classicist and we took lots of photos uh, around Pompeii and she wrote, basically a massive book's worth of of content and we stuck it all onto a little interactive cd-rom that ran in a browser um 
and um, and sold it. And we sold it to students and to other teachers and things like that. But we did all the fulfillment ourselves, and we didn't get enough orders to sort of warrant, um, uh, you know, getting someone else to do it. But it did mean wrapping up CDs. You know, every few evenings, and it just—it isn't you know to do one, and it's and it's no effort at all. But when it's every evening, it's like oh, I've got to do another CD. <laughs> Could have print out the label, got a sticker stamp on it, and post it, and so on. And it just starts to get to you after a while, even if you are getting a bit of money for each one. Mm-hmm. I just want to try and avoid that, frankly. Yes. Yeah, I think yeah, it gets to a point where having a load of this stuff in your house is definitely uh, not something you want to be doing. That's right, and uh, which is where eBooks obviously take away that that whole thing. But I was adamant i was going to create a, a physical artifact to go with it i wanted this to be an actual book you could have on your shelf as well i think it depends on the sort of the sort of material it is whether whether having something printed is is more important interestingly i've had more requests for my self-published stuff to be done as audiobooks than i ever have as print which oh, really? is quite interesting lots of people would like them recorded i think there's an awful lot particularly because one of my books is is sort of about business and side projects and I think in that, those sort of people, a lot of them listen to stuff as they're commuting or running. I mean, I listen to podcasts and things when I'm, when I'm running. Um, and so that's, they like to listen to things. So they like audiobooks. So I've had lots of requests to do it. And I may well do it at some point. Uh, it's just time to sit down and really record it all. Um, but I, th- I thought that was quite interesting how many people asked for an audio version. I've been thinking about doing the same thing, but then it's if you're explaining kind of design things or you're explaining sometimes code things. Mm. So I wonder how you get that how you get that across through the audio book yeah. format. I mean, the videos that I've done for I did for CSS layout modules. So at the last minute, I thought, oh, I'll just do some videos of the kind of projects in the book. And most people have bought that package with the videos and and not just the book on its own, which is interesting. So uh, you know, I think there are ways of doing. I think you know, video is probably more useful for a a design or a code book than than just audio um but yeah it, it depends on the type of thing you try to produce it's fun though i'm just looking back through my emails what have i ordered here from kickstarter um the paperback mega bundle is the one that i'll be expecting in november ah uh, yes so i'll be letter pressing some postcards for you and um and a, a little a4 poster as well yeah well that a4 poster i'm hoping is going to sit alongside my cameron mole letter pressed uh, Brooklyn Bridge. Ah, uh, right. It'll be quite a different style because it may be. I haven't decided what they're going to be yet. I, I kind of want them to be nice versions of the of some of the illustrations in the, in the book, which will be um, either sort of typeface anatomy, or it might be a, a quote illustrating a certain um, typographic feature or something like that. But it'll be the best ones. And what I probably will do is give people a choice before um, I get them printed off as well. So um, you'll be able to pick the one that. Will sit most nicely next to next to cameras. Who's doing the editing for you? We've got um, Owen. Owen's doing the editing. Owen, um, do, and Owen does all the editing now. All the yeah. editing. <laughs> Owen Gregory. Yeah, he's. Um, I've never worked with Owen before, actually, but uh, he's come highly recommended, and um, I had a few conversations with him beforehand, and it just seemed like it was he was going to give me what I wanted. From an editor, which was which was two things really. One was to help help sort of give a structure to the book, or at least verify the structure I felt that was right. So someone coming at it, um, you know, sort of from the outside and seeing does that make sense logically. And then having worked with editors in the past, Chris Mills, for example, I've worked with when I've done the odd chapter of a book and things. 
Um, it's been so useful having someone else's um, view on on that. A good editor doesn't sort of muck around with what you're writing so much as help you structure it in a way. It's like, well, you should introduce that previously here, or you don't need to explain that quite so much, or. Mm. Mm. Well, you kind of just introduce that subject, really, and people might not know what it is, and all that kind of stuff. And it just—it's all about giving the clarity. And I think that's what a good editor do does, while um, sort of keeping away somewhat from what you are writing, although also keeping a little bit of an eye on the consistency, on maybe some of the te- technicalities of it, like are you being consistent in your tense and the, and the way that you're talking to the audience? Because if you're going to be writing over a period of months, sometimes you forget. Um, what you decided, how you decided to talk to the reader, whether it was mm. sort of formally or much more informally, and um, whether you and the reader were a team. So you're talking about uh, when we are designing, or as opposed to when you are designing. You know that kind of stuff. Just those little technicalities, mm. but it's more about someone um, having an overview of of what you're writing and making sure it's going to be clear and well structured to the reader. That's what that's what I feel I'm paying for. Yeah, and, well, uh, uh, yeah. I-, I think I think the the good editors are sort of the, the good kind of um copy editors like that for for articles of books or whatever kind of they 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 make sure that you continue to sound like you um hmm. you know I've had editing experiences where they've made me sound not like me uh you know they've sort of changed the tone of things and then you're sort of like well this is going to have my name on it and it doesn't sound like something I would say anymore it used to happen a lot I'd get americanized quite a lot um, mm-hmm. uh, and I kind of get around that now by knowing how to write in American English and still sound like myself so I don't get edited so heavily but kind of the best editors I've worked with have been able to maintain my tone of voice and the way I would say something uh, but make sure that yeah it it's not jarring and it's going to be understood around the world and that kind of thing which I think is really important yeah yeah you know? well I've had Owen I've worked with Owen a lot I mean we worked together when we were making websites and he edited or copy edited hardboiled. Chris Mills did the development editing, as you described, in terms of, you know, structuring the narrative. Um, and then Owen was really, really good at sort of challenging some things. I mean, he would, you know, write notes in the margin. It's like, did you really mean that? Or, you know, that sounds crazy. Or you increase the strength of this argument or something like that. He was really, really good at that kind of thing, as well as all the other things that you described. So he's, I'm actually working with him again. He's editing the stuff that I'm doing right now that I'm not talking about, not supposed to be talking about. Um, and I've had him do things like I've had him edit my conference talks. Mm. You know, you think about, I think my current talk, 60 minute talk, is about 20,000 words. Um, and it was so useful to have him edit that. And he's going to be editing the copy on the new website as well, because just having somebody that, you know, can take a step back and take a different perspective on things and go, do you know what? I know what you're trying to say here, but you know, you're not getting to the point quick enough. That's, yeah, that's that, really that makes a lot of sense. Because so some of your talks recently have had no, no slides at all, have they? They've just been um, you talking. So yeah. it's certainly been an, oh, so, which means it's only your words that can add any, anything to, to what you're saying. There's no illustrations that people can, can look upon and say, oh, I see, that's what he's saying. It's all going to be through you. So that makes sense. I got some feedback about that talk early on where people said it's difficult to know when you stop speaking and you are quoting somebody else. So what I now do, if I quote 
you know, Brad Frost or Jeremy or whoever, I will actually throw the quote on screen and then it fades mm. away again uh, because I think that that helps people just, it punctuates the talk better. Mm. Um, yeah. But no, I think having an editor is is absolutely vital. I just, I couldn't trust myself with writing without having somebody else looking over it. Yeah. Yeah, because... Uh, it's not writing a blog post or even uh, a magazine article, um, which do get edited as well, but it, it's a whole other, much bigger venture than that, um, which needs to be consistent from beginning to end. And that's harder to do when you've got 20, uh, 200 odd pages. The other thing about Owen and about you publishing this yourself is that you won't have to fight that thing that Rachel just talked about in terms of somebody wanting to make you Americanized. Um, I remember when I did my first book all those years ago and, you know, they turned the S's into Z's and things mm-hmm. like that. And that's what we said was when we did Hard Boiled was like, it's it's me speaking, it's an English book and it's going to stay English. I think as well it's, I mean, you know, I can remember writing that those uh, early Dreamweaver books and things and uh, you know, the the whole sentence structure and, you know, when when you're writing in sort of American English is very different. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that sort of writing for essentially an American market has destroyed my ability to use the English language to some extent because, you know, you tell you these very short sentences <laughs> and no subclauses and, uh, and you get these things edited out. And so now when I write, I don't use them because I know that it, I, I'd rather try and get my voice across, but write in that way that I know isn't going to get sort of edited too heavily because I'm writing for, for that audience. Um, I mean, I think there's all sorts of things about using simpler English anyway because of the international nature of what we do and the fact that a lot of people reading English might not be their first language. But Owen picks me up on things that I'll say, and I guess that. And he'll go, no, it's, it's not guess, it's suppose. <laughs> and um, people say, and they, they, they do this a lot, I've noticed recently. I think it's because I'm paying more attention to it. They'll say, and I'll likely go, and it's not, it's not likely, it's probably. I'll yes. probably go. Mm. But these, oh, don't get me started on the creeping Americanisms. Um, <laughs> super, you don't like super. I, use, I, I say super quite a lot. I've picked that up from somewhere, I don't know where. <laughs> Everybody bloody says super. And the worst thing is that wherever you go now and you hear people being asked how they are, it's like, I'm good, thank you. And it's like, when did we start doing that? I mean, it's we're English for Christ's sake, so we should we shouldn't even be positive about it. We should say something like, you know, not too bad, or <laughs> mustn't grumble, mustn't yeah. grumble. Yeah. Or at least say, I'm well rather than I'm good because oh. I'm good. Surely that's a, that's a bit big headed, isn't it? Are you? <laughs> not that's excellent. Absolutely marvelous. <laughs> Drives me nuts. So you are going to self-publish and organize the self-fulfillment of this web typography book yes obviously there was a decision there in terms of do you go with either a large mainstream publisher who we've all worked with in the past um Mm -hmm. do we work do you work with like a niche publisher or do you go it alone and you've obviously chosen to go it alone yeah the, the initial conversations many years ago were well, there weren't really sort of small niche publishers to to go with, so we're look, thinking about oh, we'll just be a, another Voices That Matter book with O'Reilly or something like that. But that was quite a long time ago. Um, and then the opportunity came 
to uh, particularly when, when Mark was at Five Simple Steps and we, and we wanted to write this book, it was logical that we would publish through Five Simple Steps. And when Mark, um, Monotype won't let Mark write a book, by the way, as far as I understand it. I don't know if that's confidential or not, but it, it's something along those lines. Anyhow, he's not allowed to co-write this book, and I don't think he wants to either. Mm. Um, so it's just me. And in it be, that was really what was nagging in the back of my mind, thinking, well, if I'm going to write it on my own, maybe I should just do the whole thing. Because I felt like probably going to do a lot of marketing for it myself anyway. The only reason I felt that it, this book would people would buy it i've got a bit of an audience out there people seem to enjoy the talks that i do on web typography and stuff and i get asked to do it in my conferences so i thought well there's some kind of an audience for it already so okay that gives me some confidence so i can write something and i think well i'm probably going to have to market it to that audience do a lot of that work myself um anyhow so why not just do the whole thing? And it was part of the whole challenge for me. It's a big challenge to write it and then a big challenge to see if I could pull it off um, in terms of a self-publishing job as well. Um, so that really all, all went together for me. And, and this is, um, it, it would, the Kickstarter campaign to get it going was only, it, was, I just, it suddenly just occurred to me. I don't know why it, why it wasn't obvious in the first place, but um I remember having a conversation with Frank um, Camero about it, um, and, and and he got himself something like sixty five thousand dollars for his book, and you know took six months off to write it and create it, and it's lovely. And I didn't expect to get anything like that, and I didn't, but um, it, it showed that if you've got a bit of an audience out there, then a book can work on on Kickstarter. And I, and I sat down and I worked out what are the actual costs, what's a print run going to be, what's a editor going to be how much is it going to cost to do the shipping all these little things that um reading about kickstarter campaigns tell you to look out for remember the shipping costs otherwise they're going to kill you and um all of these little things make sure that you when you're giving rewards for um your various price points that they're actually going to be covered by that price all of those little things so work it all out and then i came to the number and i figured okay twelve thousand pounds that's basically what i need to make this book and ship it out to 300 odd people that was my guess at pe- how many people would go for it and so that's what I started with and you think 12,000 pounds that's an awful lot of money to raise on a on a website like Kickstarter but it uh, yeah that worked out in 46 hours so I was yeah, well happy brilliant. Was, I mean in terms of you mentioned marketing and that I think is one of the only reasons why well it's certainly one of the reasons why I chose to work with new writers back in the day mm-hmm. because you know as subsequently happened you know you make absolutely bugger all in terms of you know royalties back on on the time that you spent writing it but yeah it sold in some pretty big numbers mm. and you get and, when you get like 30p a copy or whatever it is well yeah i mean it worked out to be terrible um mm. i mean you know you look at i naively of course you know i looked at the, the sticker price of the book you know you think right 30 dollars and you've got let's say a 10 percent royalty you think i'm going to make three dollars one pound 50 for every book that we sell and of course by the time it hits promotions on amazon and you realize that actually um you know amazon are taking 60 percent anyway and th- so you're left with what like 60p a book or something and then by the time they discount it even further, because nobody ever pays $30 for a book, mm. 
that you know you're making 30p a book and that's what you know that's what it was like that's 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 pretty much yeah about 30 pence is about about what people tend to make um per copy of of books published through those those major publishers having said that we sold or they sold a shed load of books Mm. And I could walk into a Waterstones and have that lovely feeling where you can see your own book on the shelf. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I say to people. There's yeah. there's there's different reasons to do this. Um, the fact that I had books on shelves in mainstream bookshops. I mean, discounting the fact that it was actually harder to self-publish ten years ago than it is now. Uh, but even if it'd be all things had been equal, there was a benefit to me as someone who did essentially consultancy work and freelance work to have those books on shelves. And there was probably more of a benefit to my business than actually anything I ever made from those books. Um, but yeah. I think there comes a point where, you know, I don't need another book on a shelf somewhere. I have many downstairs <laughs> filling up bookshelves, you know, <laughs> it's like, I don't kind of professionally need that anymore. So then it's like, well, if I want to write, why am I doing that? And, and, and it's not even. It's not even so much about the money, how much I can make from a book. Um, a lot of it is just that I want to get this stuff out there sometimes. And and a book is a good format for that. It is a good format for that. And it's also a good format for stimulating, um, let's say, conference talks or mm. workshop or training gigs or something like that, which, you know, to be frank, do make you an awful lot more money than, you know, the yeah. royalties from a book. Yeah. But... Thinking about marketing for a second, I was thinking about this. You know, we did sell a lot um, through Five Simple Steps originally. You know, we didn't sell the quantities that we sold through New Riders, mm. but obviously the you know the margins were a lot higher, and and the split was much more favourable because you know we had a fifty fifty split between you know us and Mark. Mm. So that worked out incredibly well. But one of the things that New Riders obviously did was they had access to markets that were outside of our little corner of the internet. Hmm. And we talk yeah. about kind of marketing our books and to, you know, we have an audience. But I know that, you know, even at my peak, my audience was very narrow in comparison to all of those hundreds of thousands of web designers and developers that work in places in America that I just can't possibly ever get to, or they have no idea who the hell I am. Um, and, you know, and things like, for example, you know, university libraries and things like that, where, you know, I'm never going to get a copy of hard boiled into there, but you know, the first book ended up there. So they, they do have this kind of marketing reach and five simple steps was good at the beginning because they did have that. Um, not as wider reach as new riders, but you know they could sell more. Um, and to be honest, they made more efforts, I think, than I could have the time to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they were able back then, anyway, to put effort into trying to sell my book, which at the end of the day is part of their responsibility. You know, you go with a publisher, and it's not just their job to actually make the book. But it's their job to, you know, be banging the drum every single day. And, you know, that's something which I think is um, is is more difficult to do, you know, when, you know, when we're doing ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think I think as a self-publisher, you you definitely can make more money, um, even to your very limited audience. You can definitely make more money out of a self-published book than you will out of something that's published through a mainstream publisher. 
there's very, very few books that go through a main, mainstream publisher now that actually make the author a huge amount of money or even a reasonable amount yeah, of money yeah. that, that covers the time they spent to write the book. Um, and they say that's not the only reason to write a book. And I think, that, you know, sometimes you think, well, I'd, I actually just want this to be out there and I want it to have as wide a coverage as possible. And maybe, you know, maybe the aim is to get conference speaking gigs. And so maybe, you know, publishing through O'Reilly is the thing to do because it's going to get a lot of distribution. You can say, oh, I'm the author of this O'Reilly book. And therefore that's going to lead to people, you know, booking you for conference speaking engagements or whatever. And I think it's, you've got to weigh all this stuff up. You know, is it the short term people will pay me $30 direct into my bank account for this book? Or, you know, will I be able to use the book then as a platform to do some other thing that I want to do? I just, um, um, I think if I was going to be doing something um, in partnership with anybody in the future, I would choose very carefully the type of partners who would be able to do the stuff that I can't do. Mm. Um, in particular, um, sales and marketing. And obviously you pay for that, you know, we pay for that as authors based on, you know, the percentage of our royalties. You know, we give away percentage to have somebody else take care of that kind of stuff. But marketing is just so incredibly important. And it's more, it has to be more than just tweeting or emailing something from MailChimp occasionally. Mm. I mean, that's yeah. not marketing. You could, you know, my cat could do that. <laughs> yeah, so our, our cat's uh, the head of marketing. That's, uh, that's his official title at Perch. <laughs> <laughs> Do you do you, you have other cats that come in and freelance for you? I've noticed this on Twitter. Yeah, that we haven't quite managed to get them to the point of freelancing. They're mainly using us as sort of like a bed and breakfast, really. I think is uh, <laughs> sort of like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Seems to be what our kitchen is at the moment. Oh dear. No, I think that you know we mustn't talk about books for too long because people that aren't interested in web design books are thinking, "Oh, this is a bit inside baseball." But. <laughs> I think it applies to anybody that's sort of selling a digital product. I saw mm. today, as we recalled this, Chris Murphy has announced his little tiny books initiative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and obviously we know people that publish magazines, for example, Elliot J. Stocks and his Lagan magazine, which I really like. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm not doing a I'm not doing a kind of plugging something I like thing this week, but you know, maybe in a couple of weeks' time or something I'll talk about the guys at Jolie who make the lovely um, iPhone and iPad and Mac sleeves I have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they're they just a couple of guys, a couple of people in Amsterdam stitching leather together. <laughs> and, you know, mm. I think that whatever it is that, you know, that we're kind of making, it, the, same, you know, the same rules apply. We have this great shop um, just opened up in, in Brighton, um, which sells basically hipster magazines, and uh, by which I include um, Legon in that. And it was really nice to see uh, a copy or copies of Legon for sale in this shop in Brighton. I was really not expecting to see it there in a way because I was going to put them in touch with each other, but it turned out it's already happened. <laughs> and uh, it, it sort of reminded me of back in the day, seeing I wrote a chapter for a web accessibility book and it was published by A Press. So it did get to see it actually there in Waterstones, but I also suddenly thought, that book sitting on the shelf in Waterstones doesn't belong to anyone yet. No one's reading it yet. Whereas if you think about the people who are buying it directly from you as a self-publisher, it's, you know that you haven't just sold books to a bookshop. You've sold books to someone who wanted that book. So mm. you can sort of, if you want to sort of feed the ego a little bit, you can think about it that way. But it's still very gratifying seeing your thing for sale 
um, unexpectedly sort of thing. I need to come and visit this bookshop. And there's another place in London that actually tweeted me a couple of weeks ago. I think they were called Magazine Shack. Um, because I've been spending, when we, Rachel and I were in um, Santa Monica, weren't we, a few, mm. a couple of months ago. Yeah, for Smash and Conf. And over the road from the venue-ish, or close to the venue, or close to the hotel, was this really nice magazine bookshop. Mm. In fact, we saw a, a Dreamweaver book. We did, yes. We took photos. Wasn't one of yours. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't one of mine, but yes, we, we did. We did uh, make sure to take photos of it. Yeah. And I spent was about it in the a... retro section. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was in the remainder section out the front. I was just so glad to not see my book there. <laughs> anyway, so I the day before came home, I spent a hundred dollars in there on magazines, not because you know I was particularly interested in, um, you know some of the subject matter but because i wanted it for typography inspiration mainly and layout mm, inspiration yeah. and i've kind of kept that up a little bit you know i've bought the occasional thing that i see here and there but i really just want to go and splurge again yeah well uh, next time you are in brighton uh, this will be the shop to go to um i've spent mm, a few hundred quid in there over the past year or so just buying yeah 10 quid magazines uh i've I've almost finished reading them now. But the thing is, they are worth reading. Almost all of them, the writing and the photography in, in, in all of these different magazines, whether there be a, a, a real top-end mountain biking magazine, which I was very surprised to see, um, or something like Legon. And that's the thing is that they're not sort of trashy magazines, these things. They're things you want to keep and, and make sure you do read. Um, but, it, yeah, it's a, it's a really nice little cottage industry, really, that's cropped up. And it is a cottage industry, really, but... I don't mean that disparagingly. It just means that people can get the time to to really put the effort into making these things beautiful and and justify the price. Well, I have been planning, along with some of the writing that I'm doing, I'm actually planning a new design workshop for next year. And part of that is based around this whole kind of, I don't know, I call it atmosphere, but it's about looking at the details in a design, the sort of things that kind of transcend responsive breakpoints you know the type style and the button styles and the little details those are the kind of things that stay no matter what the screen size is and the, the thing that changes is the layout blah 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 um and one of the things that i'm doing is i'm collecting these magazines because i'm going to have a whole section of this workshop where literally people can just dive into beautiful magazines and actually look for inspiration to certain things and go okay so we take this little component you know we take this beautiful header with you know really nice combination of typefaces how are we going to change that across viewpoints Mm, um, yeah. So, hence the reason why I think that I can justifiably expense <laughs> my <laughs> expensive magazine habit. Uh, you see, I have, I have no way to expense things like that. It's all about the code here. Um, but yep. yeah, there's, there's quite a few nice sort of independent magazines. Uh, one I get, um, there's a, a running magazine called Like the Wind, which is a sort of independent running magazine. And it's just basically stories from people who run. Um, all kinds of people, you know, ultramarathoners and, and mums do, do short things and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And it's, it's really nice just to sit and read it because it's kind of like a nice thing. Um, you know, while yeah. you could read all that stuff on the screen, but there's something very nice about having something that's been carefully put together, uh, and feels nice and kind of smells nice, you know, <laughs> that sort of print smell. Um, and sometimes you can just find a particular design component or I'm really, really fond of magazine contents pages. 
Hmm. You know, just that, that simple bit. It's the, I mean, obviously, it's the first bit you turn to, um, but it's the first bit I turn to because I'm really interested to see how people lay that kind of information out. Hmm. And I think that they're just like, they're like web design footers. You know, hmm. we, should, we could hmm. potentially make some really interesting footers um, inspired by some of these magazine contents pages because, you know, that whole fat footer thing. Mm. you know what's the most interesting fat footer you've ever seen well it's probably going to have like you know four or five columns and just a bunch of links in it um whereas actually you know there comes to be like mini sitemaps in a way and that's what a contents page is in the magazine yeah or off canvas navigation or something like that you could uh, apply the same sort of you know, visual treatment to yeah it'd be lovely it- and I just get really excited when I open up a different magazine. You know, I don't. I try not to buy the same thing. I, I buy Legum all the time, but um, well, all the time, twice. <laughs> but for example, I picked up a copy of uh, Kinfolk magazine the other day, just in you know, just in the the shop at the railway station, and it was great. And you know, there's some really nice ideas in there. But I doubt that I'll buy the next one because the subject matter really wasn't my cup of tea, hmm. and I kind of had, I'd sucked up all the inspiration for the layout. Hmm. So no, I like I like that stuff. I got hold of a copy of um, Eric Speakerman's book, which he published in 1987. Um, translated, it's called something like a, a typographic novel, and it's it's, it's essentially a, a sort of typography guidelines kind of book, but written in uh, his uh, Eric Speakerman's inimitable style. And um, one of the things he's done with it to try and stick with this sort of novel metaphor is that instead of a table of contents, he's done um, a dramatis personae, a cast of characters, hmm. um, where that that's formed the... Uh, so not like not like A, B, or C, not those, not glyphs, but actual, um, whether it's line height or whether it's this, that, and the other, but he's done that as a kind of a cast of characters. And and uh, it, it's a really nice touch, actually. It does. It sounds kind of awkward and pretentious, but it, it fits somehow with the, with the whole novel pretext. Hmm. So we Out touched- of print now. Yeah, sadly, some of these things are. And I'm talking about self-published books. I really, really wish that I had backed and bought Scott Thomas's Designing Obama book in the hardback. Um, I bought I bought the EPUB, you know, and I've got a, a PDF that I can look at on my iPad. But I just so really wish that I could get a copy of that book. If there's anybody out there that wants to sell me a copy of Designing Obama for some reasonable price, not the $999. <laughs> that I last saw it for on eBay. Um, wow. Sell it to me, please. I've got to buy something other than apes on eBay. <laughs> so we touched on VAT. <laughs> Everyone's favourite subject. <laughs> and VAT and VATMOS and everything before the intro. But can we just can we touch on that again? Mm-hmm. Because can you explain for my benefit and anybody else who's just completely clueless about VAT, just what this whole VATMOS thing is and what it's going to mean for us or already means for us? Yeah. Okay. So if you sell digital products, actually the terminology is digital services, and that's because things like software and ebooks and so on are actually classed as services in the VAT legislation. I do not know why, but that's just the case. So a lot of the terminology refers to digital services. It means things like downloadable stuff as well as um, membership sites and advertising and things like that. What used to happen before uh, 1st January this year is that if I sold an ebook or a copy of our software or whatever to someone in another European country, 
I would charge them British VAT. So I would charge them 20% unless they had a VAT number themselves, in which case there's a, a ruling called the reverse charge rules. And that means you don't have to charge them VAT. If you can validate their VAT number, you can just sell them the thing without the VAT and then it, you account for it in your accounting. So that was all fine. So you were always charging British VAT. You're always charging 20%. So then there was a change to the place of supply rules, basically saying that um, things like digital services, as it were, um, were being consumed in the country of the person who bought them. And therefore, you had to charge them their VAT rate. So if their VAT rate was 19% in that country, that's what you had to charge, not the 20% UK VAT. And then you had to pay this VAT to the country in question. So all of us selling software and ebooks and things, you know, might have to pay, I don't know, you know, 30 quid to Germany and 20 quid to Poland and 10 quid to Ireland every quarter, which obviously isn't really feasible and registering in all those places. So VATMOS is essentially the system by which you pay your VAT liabilities to all these other countries to your own tax authority via the MOS system, the mini one-stop shop is, is what MOS stands for. Uh, so the idea being that at the end of every VAT quarter, you work at how much you owe to all the different countries and you submit that to HMRC and they distribute the VAT for you, uh, which would kind of be okay, except that the actual requirements you have to comply with is, you know, you have to provide proof that you've charged the right amount of VAT you have to um, know what all the VAT rates are. I mean, just today I was logging in our system uh, for selling Perch, uh, a change to Romania's VAT rate for the end of the year. Um, mm -hmm. You've got to keep up to date with all that stuff. Um, and, and yeah, you've got to make sure that you're, you know, you're paying the right amount of, of VAT. And kind of even worse is that this applies to everyone, even if you're below the VAT threshold in your country. So uh, that was going to be my next question. Right. So that mm. was that that was the big thing and nobody knew this and sort of in October last year so this this law happened at the end of, of last year so sort of from 1st of January. In about October I was reading VAT legislation as you do. Um or you do if you're me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was I was reading the because we knew at Perch we were going to get caught because we were already VAT registered. Um we were already doing reverse charge sales. So we knew this was going to apply to us. And so as I was reading the legislation so we could work out what we needed to do, I realized that there was, it basically removed the threshold. So even if you sold one ebook to France, you were going to have to register for VAT Moss in the UK. And the only way you can be registered for VAT Moss is to have a VAT number, which therefore means you have, you're VAT registered, you're going to have to do a VAT return, which, and charge VAT, which you weren't having to do before because you were below the threshold. So there's effectively no threshold for, for this stuff. Um, after this kind of came to light, and um, in fact, a lot of um, crafters, like knitters, people who sell knitting patterns and things, got hold of it. And I say I'd sort of been kind of like sticking my head above the power pit and going, hey, guys, web developers, people who sell stuff, this is this is going to be a problem. And like nobody cared. Nobody cared at all. When the knitting ladies got hold of it, they really cared. <laughs> because they're, because they're selling, you know, there's loads of these crafters essentially just funding their hobby by selling knitting patterns, and you know they're selling maybe a couple of hundred quid a month. It's, it's tiny amounts, and yet they were all 
going to end up having to register for VAT, which is just ridiculous. So everybody that sells a digital product yep. of any description that you can download, yeah, knitting pattern or a 3D printing model or whatever they are mm. or a piece of software or a book, yeah. no matter how small you are, you have to be basically be VAT registered. Yes. Which means and that you have to charge VAT on everything that you on sell. On everything, which, of course, you know, makes people incredibly uncompetitive. Um, so because of the campaigning by by this group really of 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 women who were sort of came from this kind of crafting community and and, and things uh, the UK government said okay you can register for VAT but you can submit a nil return for your UK sales um so that kind of group of people has kind of been taken out of, but they're still having to deal with with the actual VAT MOS returns and things which is i mean the system itself is an utter nightmare um and so it's still it's still a mess, and there's still a big campaign going on to essentially get a European threshold in place, so that small businesses, your know, micro businesses, can be kept out of VAT registration altogether. Which, you know, th- this legislation was to stop, you know, Amazon locating themselves in Luxembourg. Uh, it, it wasn't. It was never meant to, to be directed at people like us. But of course, we've all been caught up in it. So, on a practical level. Let's say that I've got a book to sell mm-hmm. and I want to set it up on something like a, let's just say a Shopify store. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that I have to, first of all, know every VAT percentage for every European country? Mm-hmm. And then I have to basically make that, put that into my Shopify store so that when the customer from Romania buys it, they pay 19% yeah. VAT. Is that how it works? Basically, so you need to use a provider um well there's kind of two routes through it so either you you're going to pay the vat you're going to you're going to register for moss um which i mean if you're already vat registered for your company you're probably going to have to do anyway yeah Uh, because that was our position with perch we we were going to have to do this whatever you know we're, we're outside of the threshold just as a company um so if you're going to do that yes you have to register for moss you're going to have to either build your own system or use a system that is able to charge the right amount of VAT and also crucially collect the evidence that they've charged the right amount of VAT because you have to have that evidence because if you're audited you have to be able to say I charged this person German VAT and here is my evidence my two pieces of evidence to show they're in Germany Um, so the other implication of this is that you have to put all this stuff into your checkout process like asking (laughs) where somebody is right up front so then you get people complaining and saying, you know, all I'm trying to do is buy an ebook. Why do you need my address? Um, which is a very good question <laughs> because you don't really want their address, but you need to know where they are. You need to be able to prove where in the world that, you know, they're living. So I'm assuming, because I haven't looked into this, that Shopify, and I assume there are, we should disclaimer, there are other online e-commerce solutions available but you know shopify is the one that just springs to mind i'm do they take care of that kind of thing for you in terms of um being able to input the various vat rates i don't know if they i i assume they do now um initially they weren't doing that in in such a great way there's um a really nice um provider called send owl and they're sendowl.com they do quite a nice job for ebook publishers or downloadable publishers um, of, of dealing with this stuff and giving you a nice report that you can then, 
use to fill in your VATMOS return at HMRC. So I'd recommend them. Is that who you use yeah. for yours? That's who I've been using. Yeah, that's who I'm using currently is, is Sendal. I was using Shopify and actually moved off Shopify because at the time they couldn't tell me whether it was going, they were going to have, have provision or not. And I haven't looked into recently where I'm presuming they must have done by now have, have some way of providing for it. Um, but yeah, but Anna Debenham recommended Sendal to me. I was, so I had them in mind for, for my ebook when it finally comes yeah, out. Yeah. They're, they're really nice and they're a nice company. Uh, and they're, they're, you know, they're just they're just sort of doing a good thing so I, I could definitely recommend them i've got experience of them well i will put a link in our show notes which will be at unfinished.bz um slash 116 i think is this episode number um so yeah, yeah. so the, the other thing to do and it's worth saying to people is that is to find an intermediary who will take take the vat liability out of your hands for you. So it's finding someone who essentially is a marketplace, operating as a marketplace, and so they sell your product and essentially pay you a royalty, um, but they're dealing with the VAT part. Um, so you are then selling through, and they're going to probably take a cut for doing that, uh, but it might be, if you're not already registered for VAT, that can be a good way to avoid the whole problem, is essentially sell through a marketplace and they pay you a, a royalty, which is what happens if you sell through Amazon, for instance. Um, which is kind of the shame about this because this whole legislation was to stop Amazon from kind of benefiting by being able to locate themselves somewhere with a low VAT rate. And actually what it's doing <laughs> is it's driving people to use intermediaries like Amazon to sell their stuff because then they don't have to worry about this whole VAT thing. Which, There's your definition of irony. Yes. So that's, uh, I, you know, I think that's a real shame um, because, but there are other, there are other marketplaces Um I mean, that's what a lot of the, I think, you know, the, these sort of knitting pattern sites and things have, have ultimately done is they've taken on the responsibility for the VAT and they, rather than people selling their stuff directly from them, they're now selling through them and they get paid sort of a royalty and, and that allows people not to have to register. Well, it all just sounds like a complete bloody nightmare. It's a nightmare. For, I mean, for Perch, it took us, I mean, all of December we spent really just changing our systems to make sure that we could continue to do what we do as a company and, and sell the product and not get ourselves into awful trouble. Um, and we could do that because we're developers, but if, you know, it would have been thousands and thousands of pounds if we had to pay somebody else to do that work. Um, and, you know, as it was, there were plenty of things that we would rather have been doing for our product than just making sure that we could take payment for it without getting into trouble. Um so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel very sorry for anyone caught up in this who doesn't have development skills and couldn't just say, right, well, we, we can do this. And you wrote about it. You documented a lot of this I've kind of stuff. I've written a lot, which... yes. There's a lot of stuff on my, if, yeah, there's a, on, on my, uh, on my VAT uh, tag in my blog. There's all sorts of stuff where I've ranted about, about the problems. I, I think... wonder what happens if I do a, a Google search for, and there are other search engines, search engines available. <laughs> what happens if I do a search are for there? Rachel Andrew VAT? You'll probably find me ranting in various locations of the web. You take up like the first three pages. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was this thing where I kind of, I remember reading the first thing I read about it, where I kind of, kind of clicked to me that this was going to cause this problem. And I started searching, um, thinking, no, I must be wrong. You know, I've, I'm not an accountant. You know, I've misinterpreted this. There would be a massive fuss if this was the case. And I'm saying I'm searching. I'm not fine. I found a couple of little notes in accountancy journals. And I'm thinking, no, I'm. so I published it. The initial thing I wrote, really thinking someone's going to tell me I'm wrong 
and that'll be great. I can say, no, I'm an idiot. It's brilliant. We're all fine. And it sort of had transpired over the month that no, actually, I was right. Um, but, you know, why, why weren't HMRC contacting everyone and saying, look, you need to know about this? Um, I mean, that was, you know, I think we were massively let down by our own I love this. I've just found an interview or something that mentions you on thisismoney.co.uk from May. <laughs> Since Rachel Andrew, founder of web development company edgeofmyseat.com, has said, the VATMOS issue continues to fill my inbox daily with a cascade of nonsense occurring as we pass the first VAT reporting deadline. Yep. I have ev- every mm. day I get emails from people in a panic about VAT still. And I'm constantly, I reply to them and I say, look, I'm not an accountant, you know. I'm a programmer. <laughs> and it's like, I, you know, I can't give people advice and I really feel for people because a lot of the people contacting me you know, don't have the ability to sort this out for themselves. Um, I and mean, it was a pain in the arse for us to have to do, but we could do it. Um, whereas most people aren't in that position. Well, it looks like I'm going to be struggling with pretty much the same stuff later I'll, I'll, wait, I'll, I'll wait for the emails, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll send all my support. I'll, I'll get my accountant to get in touch with you if that's okay. Well, I, I've had so many people get in touch with me and say, oh, my accountant said this, and I'm like, well, I think they're probably wrong, but it's really difficult because I'm not an accountant. You know, I can't go around telling people, hey, change accountants. But, yeah, a lot of the accountants didn't realise. My own accountant at the time did not. I told him, and then nicely he charged me for advice about it which I thought was uh, very like an accountant. <laughs> yeah, well, ours had to go look it up. When this whole thing kicked off, whenever it was, um, and we mentioned this to, to Clive, our accountant, he was like, well, first I've heard of it, and then had yeah. to come back you know, two days later and go, actually, yeah, this could be an issue. Yeah. They, I always say, when, when I first started reading about it and realized what was going to happen, there was next to nothing, um, even in you know, sort of accountancy journals and you know, poking around the web, so... Yeah, it, I think we were let down by, essentially by the authorities. And it turns out from discussions with them since, they just didn't know that businesses like ours existed. Uh, the yeah. assumption was that everyone was either sort of selling through Amazon, you know, or or they were like a big company. They they just didn't know that sort of non-VAT registered small companies selling software and eBooks and things, they just didn't know they even existed. So it's like, oh, right, great, thanks. Is there any I'm starting, plans to... I'm starting to think I made quite a good decision to make a physical book now. Maybe I won't even sell the ebook version. Maybe I'll just sell the physical books, then I can avoid this whole malarkey. Or you what just give away give the, the ebook. Physical, yeah, give yes. the ebook away. I think this this is what yeah, a lot of people yeah. are doing. And there's all sorts of really like completely batshit legislation. So HMRC said, well, if there's a physical component to what you're doing, so if it's like delivered by hand or you're like sending it out to people or it's not completely automated then you can kind of get around it which i think is very dubious what um, would be the case if i was I don't know, if i was doing hard-boiled again for example um and it was an ebook obviously if i was selling the ebook it would be you know liable for this whole hmm. batshit vatmos malarkey but what happens if what i was selling if i was to send out a postcard just like a postcard and Just then they get the ebook say. for free. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of what people have been stressing. And my concern about all of that is that, as we've seen, you know, Ireland have sent out these letters to UK registered businesses. So it's one thing HMRC saying, "Oh, it's okay. You don't need to worry about that." Um, but what if another tax authority decides that yes, you do need you you still should be paying them, um, and then you get a, you know a demand for for payment from you know Poland or somewhere. Um, 
So that's kind of my worry is how how much authority do HMRC actually have over an EU bit of ruling? Um, and so if HMRC is saying, oh, you can get round of it by doing this, you know, I'm I'm not actually 100% sure that's the case um, because it all does seem to be so completely all over the place. Um, and the the registration levels for Moss are tiny. I, I, I don't know the exact figures now, but very, very few businesses have actually registered. Um, I imagine that it's actually costing HMRC far more than they're kind of making in the VAT they're getting from other countries. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to be a complete mess. I, yeah, I, I really can't believe that this even went through. And I wish that it had been brought to our attention, you know, a year or two before it became, before it went into law. So we actually had a chance to really campaign before it happened. Um, because the whole campaign happened afterwards. Is there any talk of turning this around? Well, there is. I mean, there's, there's still this campaign and I'll, I'll, I can send you the links you can add to the show notes. Um, this EU VAT action campaign who I've kind of sort of been ad- advising that group, you know, sort of on, on a technical level. Um, you know, what is and isn't possible technically. Um, but they're doing, I mean, I mean, that group of ladies sort of put their lives on hold to try and campaign for this stuff. They really have. And they've been doing a fantastic job. They've been like, you know, over to Brussels to meet with people in the EU and, and doing this, this really amazing job to try and, try and show that there are people this is really negatively affecting, um, who were never, never the people that the legislation was supposed to catch. Um, and yet, you know, big companies can get around this stuff. They, they can code around this stuff and, and it's not going to be a major problem, but it, it, it's, you know, going to decimate the, the sort of small independent publisher of stuff. Um, you know, and, and, and that's a real shame. We should wrap this up. <laughs> right. Carry on ranting about that. On yeah. that note, on that, on that, um, on that positive note, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everybody's going to be really looking forward to like self-publishing their own books now. I'll send you a, a bunch of links actually stick in the show notes of just sort of useful stuff and, and stuff that is up to date and current on, on the whole situation. Perfect. So I suppose, Richard, I'm going to see you next at uh, Ampersand, which is the web typography conference for which I actually... Friday the 13th of November. <laughs> Ouch, I know. Um, which is, of course, the week before my big birthday. Oh, are you going to be 40? I, I wish. <laughs> I wish. No, big birthday the week after. But I paid a ticket out of my own money to come down. Ooh, well, thank not, you very much. It's not strictly true. It was the company's money. <laughs> but um, you've got Bruno Mag speaking from Doubt and Mag. We do. Yeah, he's brilliant. And... He has got to be one. Of, they've got to be one of my favourite type foundries because we've just actually used. We've used one of their uh, fonts. We used Active Grotesque on a project oh, yeah. that we've just finished for King College Hospital. And it's uh, a Vetica killer, beautiful, and um, and Ephra and Lexia and stuff like that. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to be like a type fan man. He's a great speaker as well. I don't know if you've seen him before, but yeah, he'll, he's uh, he's a real entertainer. Very no. forthright opinions. Not seen him. So that's, yeah, you're right. That's happening on Friday, the 13th of November. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or <Brighton>. right. <laughs> I believe yeah. tickets are still available. Tickets are. Actually, there's still some early birds available, actually. Um, so it's well worth going along to ampersandconf.com and uh, 
there's some early bird tickets left if you're quick. Perfect. So people can follow you, Richard, on Twitter. You are Clagnut, obviously. Afraid so. And you should yeah. follow Rachel because she's Rachel Andrew. That's right. And you can follow me at Malarkey. And to ask questions or suggest topics, you can still message this show on Twitter at UnfinishedBZ or you can email me because people do occasionally with final demands. He has at unfinished.bz. 